0: Can I get a thumbs up? Can you hear me? Yes, all right. Let me wait a, a minute or two for people to come in. Today I'm very excited to be talking about, uh, of course, my favorite area in academia, which is evolutionary psychology. As many of you know, uh, I pioneered the use of uh, applying the evolutionary lens in consumer behavior. This is why I'm housed in a business school. And so what I thought I would do today, I mean, some of you may be familiar with some of my work, but uh, many of you may not be. And so I thought that I would just take, this is actually from a slide in my second lecture, typically in a semester where I'm teaching, let's say consumer behavior or psychology of decision-making or understanding our consuming instinct. I'll have a, a slide on the important tenets of evolutionary psychology. And so what I thought I would do is just go through some of these important tenets because it really doesn't make sense to um, study evolutionary psychology, well, study any psychology or study human behavior without recognizing where our cognitive system, our emotional system, our behavioral systems come from. Uh, It it doesn't just arise magically, it arises via the exact same dual processes of natural and sexual selection that describe the evolution of all life forms. Uh, And so what I'd like to do is, as I said, maybe spend, I would say about, probably take me about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes to get through this, then uh, that will be an intro. One of the things I'm thinking of doing, by the way, is just doing these kind of short public lectures on x spaces so what i do is i just choose a topic in this case okay key tenets of evolution psychology and i lecture about this and then to my subscribers only uh, i then switch to another x spaces session and then you could ask me q a Q&A for typically i don't know maybe 30 minutes okay so that's what we'll probably do uh again the the cost of the subscription forgive me for uh uh diminishing the purity of purity of the learning process but it's akin to buying a latte or and or you know a, a coffee and so hopefully it's worth your while <clears throat> i try to put up all sorts of exclusive content book recommendation article recommendations as i said exclusive q and a period with my subscribers although about 50% of the fees that i or the the subscriptions that i uh, levy end up going uh, to various fees. I think 35% goes to Apple, which is insane. So if I make $100 dollars a month, fifty dollars goes away. But in any case, let's start with uh, what evolution psychology is. I see that there's a request but I'm not as I said I'm not taking any it's a it's a one-way lecture. And then if you do have requests to to speak to me or to ask questions, then we can do so uh, in the subscriber-only space. Alright, so what is evolutionary psychology? Well, before I maybe explain what evolutionary psychology is, let me explain some of the other disciplines in psychology. Although evolutionary psychology is really not a discipline, rather it is the framework that should be used to explain all other areas of psychology. So if you wanted to study perceptual psychology or motivational psychology or cultural psychology or clinical psychology or developmental psychology or social psychology, each of those areas has to be informed via the evolutionary lens. Because again, as I said, your your motivational system or your perceptual system uh, or your decision-making abilities don't just arise out of magic. They arise out of the exact same evolutionary processes that explains uh, everything else in life. All right, so what is evolutionary psychology? Before I do that, uh, let me maybe briefly discuss what are some of the precursors. I, I'm, I'm going to use the acronym EP for evolutionary psychology. So when you hear me say EP, please remember it's evolutionary psychology. So what are some of the what are some of the disciplines that are precursors to EP? Uh, some of you may know that I held a and you'll see in a second why I'm saying this, some of you may know that I held a university-wide chaired professorship for 10 years. The chair was called Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. The Darwinian Consumption part just means applying evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior. Uh, The Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences part is what I want to talk about next, which is basically there's a whole bunch of different ways by which we can apply the evolutionary lens to study human behavior. And some of these lenses are serve as precursors to EP. So, for example, we have ethology. So, ethology is a field that uh, actually the, the pioneers of uh, ethology won the Nobel Prize. I think it was in 1973. It's basically studying the evolutionary roots of the instincts of animal behavior. So, when it's just animal behavior, you call it ethology. If it's human behavior, you call it human ethology. So let me give you an example of that. By, by the way, the, 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 the father of ethology is Conrad Lawrence, who, as I said, won the Nobel Prize with uh, Nico Timbergen, and I can't remember, the third gentleman, Klaus something. This was, I think, in 1973. Uh, Lawrence is probably the guy that you might have seen in a National Geographic uh, documentary where you see this professorial looking guy walking on a farm and there is a bunch of little ducklings following him. Well, this is called imprinting. It's the ethological principle of imprinting. Well, what's imprinting? It's an ontogenetic mechanism, which means basically it's it's developmentally released such that when a duckling hatches, it has this built-in instinctual mechanism that says the first thing that I see moving must be mama. And now, in 99.9% of the cases, when that fixed action pattern, that's the official ethological term, when that fixed action pattern is released, it is actually correct. The the animal that moved when the duckling hatched is typically the, the mama duck. But... If we take away the the duckling, I mean the the mama duck, and we replace it by a Doberman or by a uh, by Professor Lawrence, then the chicks, the ducklings, will be imprinted on whatever it is that they saw first moving. Hence, that's why you see the the ducklings following uh, Professor Lawrence. Okay, so so ethology was a precursor to EP, whereby you studied these fixed action patterns and how they are behaviorally released or activated, if you like, or invoked. Uh, you know, territoriality is another one. Aggression is another one. And so, uh, it you know, it hasn't really taken off as much as one would have hoped. As I said, they won the Nobel Prize in 1973. So there are some studies that I cite in my first book, The, the Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, where people have applied the ethological approach uh, within the context of human behavior. Uh, But at the very least, I want to give you a sense of uh, these various uh, disciplines that constitute the evolutionary behavioral sciences. So one is ethology, remember that. By the way, I mean, look at this, you're getting a full lecture on the evolutionary behavioral sciences and Uh, evolutionary psychology for free, people, for free. All right. So number two, so ethology is one. Number two, we have behavioral ecology. Now, behavioral ecology is a different evolutionary discipline. And in that field, what you're studying are cross-cultural differences in behavior and how these are rooted in an evolutionary mechanism you follow it's and forgive me if it's uh, it's a lot of mouthful but I'll try to break it down so for example the, the 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 most beautiful example I like to to this to to use in explaining what behavioral ecology is let's suppose I told you I'd like to study why uh, cross cultural differences in spice use exists right so you know Mexican food is spicier than Swedish food. Now, if you were a cultural psychologist, you would simply revel at having come up with that difference. You know, you just publish a paper that says, voila, Mexican food is spicier than uh, Swedish food. What you don't do in cultural psychology is typically explain the ultimate Darwinian why. Why is it that some cultures have evolved the cultural tradition of having spicy uh, foods while, whilst others don't. And so again, if you restrict your explanations to simply saying it's due to culture, it actually has zero explanatory power. That's like just saying it's due to magic, it's due to X. The fundamental question that you have to ask is why are cultural forms in the way that they are? Why do they express themselves in the way they are? And of course, the answer here is, well, maybe it's not of course. Maybe some people uh, have a sense of what the the explanation might be. Others may not. It turns out that the hotter the climate of a particular culture, meaning the ambient temperature, the more likely you are to have spicy, uh, the use of spices. Now, why is that? Because in hot climates, You're more likely to have a greater density of foodborne pathogens, and these foodborne pathogens are more likely to quickly proliferate, and therefore, the use of spices becomes a cultural adaptation to a biological problem. This is some deep stuff, people. Hope you're taking notes. Okay, so basically, to simply say that something is due to culture, culture A does it this way and culture B does it that way, explains absolutely nothing. But here you come with a beautifully elegant explanation which basically says I can explain to you the distribution of spices across global cuisines using the explanation of what's called the antimicrobial hypothesis. And and, and so you can get what it is. Now, why is that behavioral ecology? Because what you've done here is you've taken cross-cultural differences and you've argued that those cross-cultural differences are due... To biological reasons. They are adaptations to a biological problem. So it's not that it's either culture or biology. Culture exists in this form because of biology. So now imagine how powerful that is in the context of the work that I do, where you're studying, say, cross cultural similarities in consumer behavior and cross cultural differences in consumer behavior. Well, now using the evolutionary lens, if I am an international marketer, I can very quickly understand why certain cross-cultural differences arise and why cer- certain human universals exist in the way that they exist. So, to recap so far, we've got ethology, we've got behavioral ecology, and now let's move on to maybe I'll do one or two others. There, are, there are about five or six different uh, uh, you know disciplines that are evolutionary minded sociobiology is also a beauty I mean the the term has gone is now a bit in in disuse but it became famous through E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson is the Harvard entomologist who recently passed away by the way I'm currently reading his autobiography which I highly highly recommend I'm almost finished with it it's called Naturalist by E.O. Wilson Uh, One of my great regrets, certainly since starting my uh, show, The Sad Truth, is that I wasn't able to, you know, I'd never invited him on the show, but I'd always, you know, you sometimes think that these intellectual giants are somehow immortal. Well, their ideas are immortal, but their physical bodies are not. And so, regrettably, he passed away before I got the chance to invite him on the show. Uh, I got a chance to not meet him, but listen to him give a plenary address at the American Psychological Association meetings, uh, many years ago. And he just had such a genteel scholarly way about him, like a truly classy gentleman scholar. Uh, it would have been great to meet him. In any case, in 1975, EO Wilson published a book called sociobiology, which, uh, it's a bit of a technical book. So it's, you know, it's not the type of book that you just kind of take to the beach and read unless you're really motivated. Although it's certainly, you know, one that you can read, uh, In the book, what he basically did is he took all of these evolutionary principles from evolutionary biology and basically demonstrated how you could apply the biological lens to explain social behavior. So, for example... uh, Kin-based altruism. Why is it that animals exhibit kin altruism towards their kin, more so than towards their non-kin? Well, of course, there are clear evolutionary explanations of this type of social dynamics. And so sociobiology is the application of biology, more specifically, you know, evolutionary mechanisms, to understand social behavior. Now, I could I could use that to study the social behavior of ants, or I could study I could use it to study the dynamics of what happens to a pride of lions when new dominant lions come in, come to take over the pride. So there are all sorts of social behaviors that happen that, of course, don't exist outside of biology. They exist in their form because of biology. So, so, so far, we've talked about ethology. We've talked about behavioral ecology. We've talked about sociobiology. You could also talk about Darwinian anthropology. So anthropology, of course, is the study of man, uh, it's typically broken up into completely isolated uh, subdivisions of anthropology. So you have the physical anthropologists are the ones, so for example, when you have a, a a physical anthropologist that at a crime scene establishes that a particular skeleton is male or female. Of course, we can't do that today because, you know, transgender. But uh, uh, if we forget for a moment that uh, the transgender uh Craze exists. Then, physical anthropologists are able to tell with complete accuracy whether a whether a skeleton is male or female, but using all sorts of various, you know, sexual dimorphisms. So, physical anthropology is one field. Cultural anthropology completely abdicates biology. It says that every you know culture has to be studied idiosyncratically within its own history. There are no human universals. So. Cultural relativism, which is an idea pathogen that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind, exactly stems from the cultural anthropologists. Uh, The the grand guru of cultural anthropology would have been Franz Boas, and then he trained a whole uh, line of descendants of uh, future cultural anthropologists, most famously Margaret Mead. Uh, So, now, Darwinian anthropology is basically studying man or studying cultures using the evolutionary lens. So you could study whether there are certain human universals across cultures when it comes to, uh, you know, parenting styles. And you may do observational fieldwork across cultures to study that. And if you identify certain human universals, say, Women are more likely to you know hold their babies longer than men, and that holds true across every culture. Well you might come and offer an evolutionary explanation for why that cross-cultural human universal exists. So Darwinian anthropology is simply using the evolutionary lens, evolutionary mechanisms, evolutionary biology, to, to study uh, anthropological issues. You also have something called <coughs> excuse me gene culture coevolution modeling gene culture coevolution uh i mean it's an approach that can fit within anthropology or it could fit within behavioral ecology or it could be even within evolutionary psychology it basically argues that many mechanisms are really a feedback loop between genes and culture and that's why it's called dual inheritance modeling or gene culture coevolution modeling so for example the fact that we can predict with very clear accuracy why some cultures have a much greater incidence of the genes that that cause lactose intolerance or not. It turns out that that's due to whether the particular culture has a history of pastoral living, meaning raising of cows and sheep uh, and lambs and so on, because cultures that have a pastoral tradition will then use... Uh, milk uh, as part of their dietary intake and then that builds uh, resistance uh, you know make it's less likely to make you lock lactose intolerance now so why is that called gene culture coevolution? because you have a feedback between the cultural tradition ser- serves as the mechanism by which there are selection pressures within the environment for certain traits to be adaptive or not. And so something like the gene that synthesizes lactose or not, it doesn't take many generations for it to be selective. And so gene culture coevolution modeling is exactly that approach. It basically says that there is this, this constant feedback loop between genes and culture and, and and to understand that mechanism, you're using certain evolutionary principles. And finally, the last one that I will mention before I move on to the key tenets of EP is uh, mimetic theory. Now, meme, the, the term meme is now something that is very uh, well known. You know, you talk about an internet meme. But the term meme was originally popularized by Richard Dawkins, the uh, zoologist uh, and uh popularizer of, well, evolutionary thinking uh, to the masses. Uh, he's still alive. I still wish to hopefully convince him to come on my show. Haven't been able to. I reached out to him on a couple of occasions, but we never connected. I mean, I f- he follows me on on Twitter and I follow him, or on X, rather, I should say now. Uh, so hopefully one day we'll be able to sit down together because there's so much for us to, to chat about. We have so many things in common. Uh, although he may be a bit more... And I, I I don't think I'm being unfair he may be uh, more of a caustic atheist than I am now I'm, I'm not much of a believer but I truly do understand the the importance uh, and value that people hold in you know in toward religiosity in other words I understand why people are religious now that doesn't mean that I agree with all you know religious tenets but I I'm a bit more uh willing to understand that the default value of human beings is to be religious believers, whereas I think uh, Professor Dawkins tends to be a bit more caustic when it comes to to, uh, to religiosity. But in any case, uh, the reason why I'm mentioning him is because in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, which I highly recommend you all read, uh he basically uh, introduced the term meme as the cultural analog to the gene. So in the same way that genes propagate in populations, he argued correctly that humans are both a biological and cultural animal. And so we also, right now, the lecture that I'm giving right here on X is a a form, well, a, a very powerful form of mimetic transmission, right? The memes in my brain are going through my, you know, voice, and it is hopefully, you know, entering your brain, I am infecting you in a, in a positive sense, not in a parasitic sense, I am uh, infecting you with these ideas. And so, libraries are a large repository of memes, right? Uh, uh, if I start singing a jingle, and you catch it, and you start singing it uh, you know, two minutes later, well, that itself was a meme that was transmitted from one person to the next. So any packet of information that spreads from one person to another, from one group to another, uh, is a mimetic transmission. And so one of the things that you could do in an evolutionary sense is study, you know, how memes uh, go viral. Are there certain structures of the content of memes that will make them more infectious than others. And you could see how, you know, understanding these processes, uh, eventually led to, you know, me writing the parasitic mind, my 2020 book, which please, if you haven't gotten a copy yet, you need to administer that mind vaccine to you and to your loved ones. Uh, but I should mention, I'm just digressing for a second. Uh, My neuroparasitological model in in the parasitic mind is distinct from memes. Because memes can be positive memes, they can be neutral memes, or they can be negative memes. But the the, the framework of parasitic idea pathogens is a unique reality. Because a parasitic means it's, it's taking the host parasite mechanism... And it's basically saying that to the detriment of the host, the parasite is altering its behavior to suit its reproductive interests. So it's not the same as mimetic transference. But in any case, I'm, this is just a technical point. So to summarize before I now get finally to the uh, the main, you know, the, explaining what the key tenets of evolutionary psychology are, I've discussed... Ethology. I've discussed behavioral ecology, sociobiology, gene culture coevolution modeling, Dar- uh, Darwinian anthropology, and mimetic theory. And now I'm going to come to evolutionary psychology. In their totality, all of these disciplines constitute the evolutionary behavioral sciences. So this is why my chaired professorship is was in the evolutionary behavioral sciences because I don't frankly, care which approach I use. My research is almost always informed, you know, by the evolutionary lens. And then I can use that uh, lens to study a wide range of things, right? I've studied things in psychiatry and, you know, right? So I've studied the Munchausen syndrome by proxy and suicide and obsessive compulsive disorder and things that are bread and butter marketing, you know, gift giving behavior and, uh The framing effect, some of you may know it. This is the Kahneman and Tversky stuff. I've looked at that from an evolutionary perspective. Mate search, uh, all sorts of things I've studied. I've looked at how the menstrual cycle affects women's behavior. I've looked at how conspicuous consumption affects men's testosterone levels. So my research areas are very, very broad, but they're typically all under the rubric of some application of an evolutionary mechanism. Hence, that's why... Uh, you know, people refer to me as either as an evolutionary psychologist or evolutionary consumer psychologist or evolutionary behavioral scientist. Okay. So now we come to the the, the the last remaining part of today's lecture. And I hope that you're enjoying it. Maybe I can get a couple of thumbs up just to get a sense that uh, you're hopefully enjoying this and, and learning. Where are the thumbs up? Where is the Where is the happiness? I'm not seeing it. Where is it? Give me a thumbs up. Give me something. Oh boy, there's a lot of people here. I wish I don't know if there's a way to know how many people are are in the in the session. In any case, oh, I see a person with a Ukraine flag with a thumbs up. Okay, thank you. Uh, I've got another person who just gave 100%. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so now I'd like to talk about what evolutionary psychology is. Okay? This is the the punchline. So, are you ready? Focus. Because one of the things that I despise the most in my public engagement is when people start saying, I don't expect the people that are here listening, but, you know, some random guy living in mom's basement, oh, evolutionary psychology, that's just quack science, that's pseudoscience, you know, you guys just sit with a cognac and a cigar and you just make up stories. I mean, literally, nothing could be further from the truth, okay? But in any case... Uh, I'll leave that for another lecture. What is evolutionary psychology? Okay. So number one, evolutionary psychology purports that the mind is a product of natural and sexual selection that was shaped during the EEA, the Environment of Evolutionary Adaptiveness, basically the Pleistocene era from somewhere from 10,000 years ago to about almost 2 million years ago, 1.8 million years ago. So in the same way that evolution has Resulted in us having opposable thumbs in the same way that evolution uh, gives us a different respiratory system than that of fish, right? Everything is due to evolution. Well, surely it can't be that the most important organ in your body that defines your personhood, which is your mind, your brain, that that somehow exists outside of evolution. But it may or may not surprise you to know that 99.9% of social scientists still hang on to the idea that, well, to the extent that evolution operates, it stops at the neck. So sure, Professor Sad, evolution explains opposable thumbs, but what kind of quack scientists are you that you think that the human mind is shaped by evolution? Well, of course it's shaped by evolution. What, what do you, how else do you think it came to be? Right? You, you, you wouldn't st- every single other species on earth i mean literally every single other species on earth is never studied without an evolutionary lens without understanding the biological heritage of that species but somehow there is this unique species species called homo sapiens that exists in a magical plane outside of evolutionary theory of course that's nonsense right So number one, mind is a product of natural and sexual selection. For those of you who don't know, natural selection is the mechanism that results in the adaptations that confer survival advantage to an organism, whereas sexual selection is the evolutionary mechanism that results in adaptations that confer a reproductive advantage, right? Because remember, life is a two-step process. You have to survive. But you could survive all you want if you don't reproduce, if you don't spread your genes, at least if you're a sexually reproducing species, then you're finished. You're in a Darwinian dead end. So life is a two-step game. Survive and mate. Therefore, hence, natural and sexual selection. So our human mind is shaped by these dual forces. Okay, number one. <clears throat> number two, very, very important. Evolutionary psychologist. Recognize that the human mind is made up of two sets of computational systems. <clears throat> there is what's called domain-general mechanisms. So, for example, intelligence is a domain-general ability. Why is it domain-general? Because well, precisely that. Right. I mean, even even the, even when you measure intelligence, it's called general G. For, okay. It's, it's 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 general intelligence. Why? Because I can use my intelligence to do well in my job, to be funny at a party, to do well on a calculus exam. So it is a transferable cognitive ability across many domains. Okay, And nearly all of psychology simply focuses on domain general mechanisms. Now, it's not that that's wrong. It's that it's only part of the story. So our human mind is made up of an amalgamation of domain general mechanisms. But now here comes the evolutionary part. But domain-specific mechanisms. Now, what do we mean by domain-specific? It means that we've evolved computational systems that have uniquely evolved to solve very specific evolutionary problems. Find mate retain mate, avoid uh, poisonous, you know, uh, contaminated food, avoid predators, build coalitions and friendships, invest in kin. Each of these recurring evolutionarily important problems would have resulted in selection pressures, evolutionary pressures, for the human mind to evolve Targeted mechanisms. This is very, very. God damn! I can't believe you're getting all this for free. I better see an incredible growth of subscription. This shouldn't be. This should be like a a thousand dollars for this session. In any case, that's one of the beautiful things about the democratization of knowledge, and that is that we can now just sit and speak to each other, uh, completely separated by thousands of miles. It's it's such a beautiful thing. In any case, so. What's an example of a domain-specific mechanism? Well, let's suppose you want to make the argument that human beings have evolved a preference for facially symmetric, well, for for, for facial symmetry. In other words, we find uh, attractive a person who's symmetric. And by the way, that is a human universal. Now, if I want to demonstrate to you that that is a adaptation. By the way, that speaks to another tenet of evolutionary psychology, which is that the human mind is not tabula rasa, right? Social scientists typically think that we are born with empty slates and it is only socialization that then fills our otherwise empty minds or in Latin, tabula, razi, tabula rasa, empty, empty plate. That's nonsense, right? There are biological imperatives that are completely they're hardwired when we come to the world. Now, how would I establish that? How would I establish that that the preference for facial symmetry is innate? Well, here I would turn to developmental psychology. Developmental psychologists study, well, cognitive development or, or emotional development. It, they're, they're studying how these mechanisms, you know, come to be throughout the life cycle of an organism. Well, I could take children or infants who are too young to be socialized. In other words, by definition, they could not have been socialized. And I could show you that they already exhibit an innate preference for facially symmetric individuals at a stage Prior to them having been had the possibility of being socialized. By definition, I'm ruling out the socialization explanation. So that's a very, very powerful way to demonstrate how certain mechanisms are innate, okay, are instinctual, so to to use the term of human ethology. So domain specific mechanisms are those that have specifically evolved to solve a recurring evolutionary problem. And so my mind and yours is an amalgamation of both domain general mechanisms and domain-specific mechanisms. And if you'd like to remember this distinction, I always tell my students when they're all panicking about the exams, one of the best ways to remember this distinction between domain general and domain-specific is to think about a Swiss army knife. I I, I wish I was taking questions now to, to, to see if anybody can, can guess why I'm using the Swiss army knife metaphor. Well, the Swiss Army knife is made up of different blades, correct? Each of these blades solves a particular function that is non-transferable to other functions, right? So when you open up the, the cork blade, you know, the one that for you to pop the cork from the wine bottle, I can't use that blade to cut butter. It it could only be used for that singular function and it is non-transferable and therefore it is you know function specific or domain specific so one of the things that evolutionary psychologists have done is they've tried to uncover what are some of these domain specific modules and then demonstrate how they are actually cognitive or emotional or behavioral adaptations okay so that's a very very powerful distinction from non evolutionary psychology and and what evolution psychologists do and then finally the last uh important tenet and then i will uh call it quits but but please post comments at the at the bottom you know in the uh whatever in the in the comments section of the general x spaces session the last distinction or tenet of evolution psychology arguably the most epistemologically mind-blowing distinction, is the distinction between proximate explanations and ultimate explanations, okay? This is really, truly important. I mean, I mean, literally, if you only learned this, you would be unbelievably more better equipped in understanding the, the natural world. Much of science operates... the proximate level. What does that mean? Proximate explanations explain the how and the what of a phenomenon, okay? And much of science operates at the proximate level, and that's perfectly fine. It's the mechanistic explanation of a phenomenon. How does diabetes occur? What are some factors that increase the likelihood of you getting diabetes? So notice how I use the words how and what, Okay. So that's fine. Most Nobel Prizes have, that have ever been won have been won for explorations at the proximate level. That's perfectly fine. But now comes the big kicker. Evolutionary theory and evolutionary psychology recognize that there is a completely separate epistemological level to scientific explanations, and that's called ultimate explanations, Ultimate explanations. Ultimate doesn't mean superior. You know, it's the ultimate. It's better. A lot of my buffoonish and basilic colleagues who were who have been historically hostile to all of my evolutionary psychology work used to get offended. Oh, you know, big big biology guys coming with his ultimate explanations. That's not what it means. Ultimate explanations means the Darwinian why. So it's ultimate in that if you unfold the... The the sequence of causality, it's the ultimate Darwinian why, which is why did the mechanism evolve to be of that form, okay? So the how and what answers the proximate explanations, and the ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why. And so let me give a specific example, which I've often given, so maybe some of you have heard it before, but I suspect many haven't. Whenever, Because it's, otherwise, it's, it's maybe a bit abstract to, to understand the distinction between proximate and ultimate. So let me, let me explain it. Take, for example, pregnancy sickness. Pregnancy sickness is simply a more general term for morning sickness. Uh, the reason why you don't say morning sickness is because while many women will experience those symptoms in the morning, others don't. And so the more general term is pregnancy sickness. Now, pregnancy sickness, there's a million ways that if I were a researcher in in this area, or even a practitioner in this area, a gynecologist, an OBGYN physician, there's a million proximate questions that I can ask. I could say, hey, how do hormonal changes in a woman's body affect the severity of her pregnancy sickness, right? So you see how I said how? How is a proximate question. What are some olfactory cues that will increase the severity of pregnancy sickness symptoms. That's a what question. And there's been a million different scientific proximate questions that have been asked uh, when it comes to pregnancy sickness. But now get ready. I'm about to blow your minds. You ready? You're sitting, you're, seated, you're sitting seated or sitting down? The ultimate explanation for pregnancy sickness is to try to understand the darwinian why why did this mechanism evolve and the the person who really i mean she's not the only one but she's one of the best known uh, evolutionists to study the evolutionary roots of pregnancy sickness her name is margaret prophet uh, and there's a whole story about her she just disappeared off the face of the earth is a just enter her name uh, Margaret Prophet, P-R-O-F-E-T, incredible scholar. She was an independent scholar. She wasn't affiliated to any school. I don't even think she, uh, when she came up with some of her brilliant theories, she didn't have a PhD, if I remember correctly. In any case, the ultimate Darwinian explanation for why pregnancy sickness is the following. Now watch how gorgeous this is. uh, Pregnancy sickness happens during the first trimester of your gestation, during a period called organogenesis. Organogenesis is when the organs are forming in utero, okay? Hence organogenesis, the, the, the start of organ formation. Well, you could literally set your clocks to organogenesis. We know exactly roughly when it's, you know, what when it's going to start in the first trimester and when it's going to end. So what a, how does that help us understand the Darwinian why? Well, the most dangerous thing to the, to the fetus while its organs are forming in utero is if the mother is exposed to food-borne pathogens, specifically teratogens. Therefore, women—this is very much consumer behavior— women will be repelled from consuming certain foods that might otherwise have a high load of such pathogens. Or they become uniquely attracted to other foods that serve as antimicrobial uh, insurance against ingestion of these. So for example, you've all heard of the stereotypical uh, pregnant woman is desirous of pickles. Well, because pickling actually serves as an antimicrobial mechanism so uh, smoking food salting food using spices pickling are all part of a panoply of uh, antimicrobial mechanisms that are that are used that are ingested to protect yourself now let's suppose that all of these food preferences whether i'm repelled by certain foods or Uh, attracted to other foods, what would be the ultimate insurance policy to make sure that if I'm a pregnant woman that I protect my fetus during organogenesis? Well, then I will throw up. So the feeling of, so the ultimate mechanism, you know, the final mechanism is, you know, if all else fails, throw up. And therefore, now you might say, okay, well, that sounds great. That, that's, that's, that's a, that's a cool scientific reality. But what is the practical, actionable thing here. And again, forgive me here. I, I truly hope that you appreciate the the power of what we're talking about here. In the same way that you couldn't study things at the nano level until we developed an electronic microscope, and in the same way that you can't study things at the cosmological level until you develop telescopes that are powerful enough to allow us to see things that the naked eye can't see, what I'm offering you right here is an epistemological telescope and electronic microscope. What I'm showing you is that once you understand evolutionary theory, you're able to explain any phenomenon involving involving biological agents at Two levels of analyses at the proximate level and the ultimate level. So now let's come back to pregnancy sickness. If you say, okay, well, who cares? That's that's great, Dr. Saad, but I mean who cares about what's the actionable practical uh, value in having a Darwinian explanation of pregnancy sickness? Aha. Well, get ready. Let's suppose you are a pregnant woman who's experiencing great amount of pregnancy sickness symptoms. Well, tomorrow you have an exam or tomorrow you have a job interview or tomorrow you're going on a business trip. You don't want to be running to the bathroom every 14 seconds and throwing up and feeling awful. So you go and see your OBGYN, your gynecologist, and you say, hey doc, help me. What will he or she do? They will prescribe something to you that attenuates those pregnancy sickness symptoms. Guess what? You ready? That is the perfectly incorrect thing to do from an evolutionary perspective. Why? Because those pregnancy sickness symptoms are there to protect the fetus. Now, you might say, well, how do we know that? Well, there are several ways we know that. You're much less likely to have a miscarriage the more pregnancy sickness you experience. The success, the trajectory of your gestational you know, path, journey, is more likely to be successful the more pregnancy sickness symptoms you experience. So while it makes pragmatic sense for you to say, look, I want to reduce my symptoms because otherwise I can't go and take this exam. I'm going to be running to the bathroom every three minutes. From a broader, ultimate explanation perspective, those very unpleasant symptoms have evolved to the benefit of your growing child in your in your belly and so here is where you see the value of applying the evolutionary lens to medicine and i actually mentioned this i was just uh giving a talk in colorado this past weekend at the steamboat institute's uh, summit on foreign policy and global security and i had a uh, uh a student who's heading to to medical school ask me you know okay you know well, This evolutionary psychology stuff sounds so fascinating. And so I was trying to explain to him the importance of evolutionary medicine. By the way, the the pioneer of using evolutionary principles in medicine, there's a great book, highly recommended. Go and buy it when we finish this today. It's called Why We Get Sick by George Williams and Randy Nesse. Nesse is N-E-S-S-E. Randy Nesse is a friend of mine who's been on my show twice. He is a psychiatrist by training, but he's an evolutionary psychologist. physician in that he applies the evolutionary lens to study the why we've evolved bodies and minds that are prone to certain diseases. So understanding the ultimate causation of disease can result in completely different medical interventions than if you were restricted strictly to the proximate world. And so one of the things that Randy has been doing well, probably the, the primary thing that he's been doing in his career other than you know publishing scientific papers, is to try to Darwinize the medical curriculum in medical schools. In other words, it makes no sense for future physicians to be trained without ever the word Darwin or biology, I mean evolutionary biology ever being mentioned. That makes you an incomplete physician. Now, that doesn't mean that you still can't be a great physician if you're restricted to proximate world but you're certainly a more complete one if you know both proximate and ultimate. The same applies, so that's, what have I done? I've done exactly the same thing that Randy does, but instead of trying to Darwinize the medical school, I'm trying to Darwinize the business school. You can't study economics or trading or employer behavior or employee behavior or consumer behavior without recognizing that all of these biological agents are shaped by evolutionary forces and so that's that's why i darwinize the business school whether it be entrepreneurship or behavioral game theory or economics or behavioral finance or consumer behavior all of these fields actually i have a book called evolutionary psychology in the business sciences it's an edited book where there are different chapters in different areas of business uh, and where you demonstrate how you would apply the evolutionary lens in those fields. How would you apply the evolutionary lens in retail design? Well, there is a way to do so, okay? So, to summarize, the key tenets of evolutionary psychology, the mind is a product of natural and sexual selection. Also, evolutionary psychologists recognize that there are domain-specific and domain-general mechanisms that constitute the human mind. The mind is not an empty slate. It's not tabula rasa. And of course, evolutionary psychology recognizes the epistemological distinction between proximate and ultimate explanations. So there you have it. That's, uh, I mean, I was hoping to only go 20 to 30 minutes, but of course I never stay true to, to do, I always end up speaking much longer, went for almost 50 minutes. Uh, It would be fantastic. I'm truly trying to build a community of people. I mean, a dream would be that I'm giving these lectures and there are, you know, 10,000 people signing up, you know, and it's not, it's not just because of the money of the subscription. It's because, you know, you can't believe some of the conversations we end up, we end up having. Uh, Now, right now I've got, you know, a couple of hundred subscribers, but imagine if I could get thousands of subscribers. Imagine if we could live in a world where, you know, every single day I wake up and I prepare a lecture, which I then, you know, profess to, you know, 10,000 people, and then a thousand people are coming for a Q&A period. So if you appreciate what I'm doing here, and I really wanted to do, by the way, a, a session that was a scientific session, because of course, Many of you know me through my other, I mean, which is also science-based, but, you know, you know me as someone who fights in the culture wars, as the author of The Parasitic Mind. I mean, all of that, of course, is scientifically based. But, of course, my, my the, you know, the majority of my scientific career has been spent within the behavioral sciences, within consumer behavior, within evolutionary psychology, within psychology and decision-making. So I really wanted to return to, to the roots and, you know, start lecturing uh, using this incredible space. Uh, about scientific issues. And so uh, I don't know if it'll ever be as exciting as lecturing about evolutionary psychology. So maybe I led with uh, my favorite topic, because obviously I'm an evolutionary psychologist. But I just, I'm so thankful for these platforms. And uh, I don't know if if Elon is here. Maybe he is. We do follow each other. I I can't tell you how thankful I am that someone like Elon Musk exists. I, I said it when, when, when he originally bought Twitter, that of all of the great things that he has achieved, and you know he's achieved more than a, a thousand people put together will ever achieve through all of his entrepreneurial uh, uh, active and innovations and so on, none are going to historically be as important as him having defended freedom of speech, right? Because uh, listen, uh, many of my scientific papers would get desk rejected at journals because people, the editor, did not like evolutionary psychology. So to have a forum where I could say, hey guys, seven o'clock today, I'm talking about evolutionary psychology, come join me, let's have some fun. Uh, yes, we can originally uh, thank Jack Dorsey being the the uh, the founder of Twitter, but boy, do we all owe uh, a lot of, to Elon Musk. So Elon, if you're listening, or if you will listen, hats off to you. Thank you so much. You will go down in history as unbelievably important, if if for no other reason than the fact that uh, you're providing for many of our free thinkers a platform to, to do exactly what we're doing here. So guys, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I will now be closing this session, heading off to a QA. and I'm hoping to only keep it to half an hour because otherwise my wife will divorce me uh, and my children also need to spend some time with their gorgeous father. Uh, so I'm going to close this one and then open up another session, but it will be reserved for only the subscribers. And there what I do is I just take questions. So if someone wants to ask, hey, tell me more about Proximate Ultimate. Tell me how we can apply evolutionary psychology in the whatever, in uh, psychiatry, whatever it is that today we've talked about. But please, if you do end up subscribing and join me there, restrict your questions to today's topic, key tenets of evolution psychology. Thank you all so much for coming, and uh, I will talk to you soon. I'm going to try to have these as often as possible. I'm currently on sabbatical, so on the one hand, it's, it's good news in that I have more time because I'm not teaching, I'm not doing administration. On the other hand, when I'm on sabbatical, I'm usually trying to catch up on all of the other work, like the next book, you know, uh, closing out some papers, traveling a lot more, giving a lot more talks. So it's unclear whether I'll have more or less time, but uh, I'm certainly going to try to, don't hold me to this, but have at least one of these a week. And I hope that you always join me. And by the way, mention to other people, tell people. Again, this is unbelievable, right? I just turned this on and we just had an almost one hour free lecture about really important and profound things. Thank you so much for your attention, guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Take care.